how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural back to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. Work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Greg Watson delivered his speech, A Comprehensive Anticipatory Green New Deal, in October 2019. Let's have a look at it. Okay. Uh, thank you, David. Um, I want to make sure you're around to write my obituary. That um, I think probably to what he was saying is obviously a person that's had a difficult time hanging on to steady employment. But um, I, I, I'm going to talk about um, global perspective on the Green New Deal. I'm using the Green New Deal because a lot of the work I do, is, especially as I start to pursue this concept of the world game, seems to be a little bit in the stratosphere, and I wanted to be able to ground it in something I think we could all identify with, and something that I think is important with respect to how we can see ourselves becoming involved in this um, existential threat that climate change is. And, and, and the problem with that is the pro a, a problem or a crisis like climate change can um, seem at times to be so overwhelming as to be paralyzing. So what we're trying to do, and I think Bucky was, you know, the, yeah, I'm going to refer a lot to, to Fuller because he changed my life and gave me a, um, the self-confidence to pursue a lot of the activities and a lot of the um, uh, career uh, paths that I've been able to follow. Um, Fuller could have easily been a cult figure. Um, it's very interesting with all the work that he did, the major emphasis, if you really distill what he tr was trying to do with his, his efforts in discovering nature's coordinate system and the synergetic geometry and, and whole systems thinking was to encourage us all to think for ourselves. It wasn't to think like him, it wasn't to parrot him, but it really was to create a context. He called it explorations in the geometry of thinking it's about thinking, but thinking for ourselves. And we, we aren't going to solve global problems if we all parrot or try to mimic uh, someone else. What we need are diversity of ideas and diversity of perspectives, especially when those perspectives are filled. I mean, they always are. I shouldn't say especially when, because they always are um, fueled by personal experience. And Bucky once said that, that each one of our lives is a way that the universe could have unfolded. And what he meant by that is, a, he, he talked about general principles. He discovered, you know, a general principle, he said, is an eternal principle uh, of nature and of the universe. 
And someone said, well, how can anyone be so presumptuous as to say that we can discover or that he has discovered anything close to an eternal principle? That was really one of his pursuits. Was these, what, what is, how does the universe work? How does the world work? What can we learn from observation about principles that are eternal? And he would often respond to folks and he said, well, you can't do that. And he said, well, I'll, I'll state a couple of principles and all you have to do to disprove that it's not an eternal principle is, is to show one case or one instance in the history of humanity, written or otherwise, where it's been contradicted. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those, but, it, but it, it, and, and what he did was sort of try to get at the essence of how uh, the world works. So I'm, that's important in terms of uh, us trying to confront. And by the way, some of those are, would seem, he, intuition was one of his major tools. And so it seems almost like a contradiction to say that some of those, some of the results of his work and some of the results of his thinking are almost um, counterintuitive. Um, Anyway, how many people are familiar with this image? At least have some idea what it is. All right, so that, that's good. This is the, you know, the Dimaxian map. Um, and actually, it's, it's sort of referred to it as the one island, one ocean map. Um, it's, it's analogous, actually, to the image in some ways. I sort of equate it to the image of the Apollo astronauts as they were making their, you know, the first journey to the, to the moon. And it took a couple of, they were on their way and, had their cameras pointed to where they were going, and then I think I remember someone in, somewhere down on Mission Control, or on Mission Control, not down, but at Mission Control said something like, why don't we turn the cameras and take a look at the Earth? Do you remember that? And so we, that's where we got this first photo of the, um, the Earth, uh, spaceship Earth, as Bucky called it, but the Earth's floating out in, in space, and it really did impact people greatly in terms of, its, uh, of that sort of one fragile-looking planet um, surrounded by the darkness and vastness of, of space. This image, I'd say, is not maybe not equally as iconic, but it is iconic because it is the most accurate portrayal we have of the whole Earth at one time with, uh, um, with all the, the um, continents spatially uh, oriented correctly and with virtually no distortion. As you know, when trying to, you know, again... Um, transfer or transform a, uh, the, the spherical globe to a flat surface like the Mercator maps, we always, distortions Greenland, right, almost is, good, is, is bigger than the United States. And, 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 and so this is important because it's the most accurate picture of the whole Earth that we have. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, I just want to kind of get into this, the solutions and where we're headed with um, policy. I'm supposedly the director of policy and systems design at the Schumacher Center for New Economics. I like titles like that because what does that mean? Policy and systems design. Well, it gives me sort of latitude and flexibility to do a lot of things, but I actually am a policy person. I, I mean, I've worked in government, worked in nonprofits, but I do believe the policy is a, is a, is a powerful tool if it's, if it's used correctly and if it's an inclusive um, process. This is a quote from Naomi Klein, um, her latest book on fire. Uh, the burning case for a new Green Deal, and very quickly, and, and she states, and you can read it, but in the process of transforming the infrastructure of our societies at the speed and scale that scientists have called for to address climate change, humanity has a once-in-a-century chance to fix an economic model that is failing the majority of people of multiple fronts, on multiple fronts. Um, and so, um, I guess this is both a statement and a little bit of a question 
Um, you could say we, the, obviously the, this, the banner, and this is a, a, the posters, uh, we need a new Green Deal. Some might say, do we need a new Green Deal? But I guess the question I'm putting forward is, can the Green New Deal be the new, the real deal? Is it, is it, does it have the substance? Is it something that is crafted? And by the way, I realize there's more than one Green New Deal proposal floating around there. There's obviously, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's and then there's Bernie's is out there. And they, they're, in essence, and I'll get to that, are basically trying to address uh, some, some same major goals. Uh, I was at Bioneers um, out in San Rafael, California, uh, the past four, uh, last weekend. And um, I had lunch with the director of an organization that I wasn't aware existed. It's called New Consensus. And it's a group that has, I think, been, I'm not sure it's the only one, but it's one of the organizations that, that has come into being, I believe in this case, with, with uh, uh, Cortez's, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's sort of blessing to actually begin drafting in greater detail uh, the Green New Deal. It's called New Consensus. I love the byline here because it raises a lot of questions for me. It says the uh, world needs a new worldview, and you know it certainly does. But here's the um, the mission, um, or not the mission. It's a statement, and it just take a couple of minutes. And I don't want to. I probably have too many words put up on the screen, but it it does talk about a truly beautiful world as possible, one without poverty or pollution and prosperity and dignity uh, dignity for for everyone. Um, there's other stuff there, but that sort of is a bold, grand statement, probably a little um, not your characteristic kind of uh, government um, statement. It's a vision. Um, and as you'll see a little later, it's very close to the vision and, uh, of that Bucky states in terms of the goals for the uh, World Gang workshops. Um, so here, again, too many words. You don't have to read them all, but I just really wanted to say, in general, what are the, the, the primary, <coughs> the span and scope of the Green New Deal? What is, it, what, is it, what is it attempting to do? And what is it attempting at least to address? And without going to each of the details, but emissions, um, power use, um, meeting all U.S. power demand through clean, renewable, and zero emission energy sources. Keep that in mind. The, the, uh, I always say both the, the devil and the angels are in the details. And I think one of the things that we've, if, if we're really serious about coming up with solutions or addressing climate change, and I, I keep saying addressing because we're in the midst of climate change. And I think it's clear what we're trying to do is to avoid the worst case scenario. Um, we've, we've, you know, the, 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 we, 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 there's, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I think, you know, my, my colleague Paul Hawken, at least with some of his efforts, would say, um, that in addition to doing some of the things that are listed here, his effort, as you know, with the drawdown project, and you have to commend him for taking this step because I think it's a bold step to say that we've got to look for ways of pulling as much of um, many of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere, pull them out of the atmosphere and, and get them out there so that maybe there can be a lot, uh, there's an opportunity or hope for more mitigation than some people would otherwise um, um, admit to. But so, so it's power usage, there's agriculture, and agriculture plays, again, and most of these are they're two-way streets. Agriculture is a, is a source of a lot of the, uh, uh, the problem, um, greenhouse gas emissions, but it can also be, uh, as, as Sally pointed out, can also be a big part of the solution. 
infrastructure, um, jobs, and then I think the part that sometimes people start to sort of say, well, wh why are you taking this much broader uh, look at this and including this, the idea of welfare and social justice? Um, is that necessary? Is that relevant? Does that in any way dilute sort of this effort to talking about mitigating or, or addressing climate change when you start to add in these issues of social justice uh, and, and welfare? And I think it's, um, well, I'll address that because I think, you know, one of the things that separates, that differentiates um, climate change from uh, the original New Deal, let's say the, let me say the, the Green New Deal from the old New Deal is, well, there are many distinctions, obviously, but I think the one that um, is most obvious is that the original New Deal was addressing a crisis and a problem that was pretty much felt by every, it was there, and it was felt across the board, and people were suffering. It was not an existential threat that was sort of, and even though I think we are <laughs> feeling its impact today, it's dispersed, it's disparate, it comes in different times. People can sometimes, because there's, um, the fires are, are put out or the, the, you know, the heat spell ends, people can sort of say, um, maybe that wasn't climate change. When you were in the heart of the depression, there was no question you're in the heart. You're, you're in the heart of it. So that, that was a real and present crisis. It was a, it, it was a um, challenge for democracy. And democracy was really imperiled in terms of its um, people questioning democracy's ability. That is our form of government, liberal government, the different branches of government really being able to come together, put aside partisan politics, and actually deal with this type of problem. I think you can hear those same concerns expressed today, right? I mean, you can, well, it's not even concerns. We can see it every day, unfortunately, <clears throat> that we can't pull ourselves together that we, 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 to even deal with the manufactured crises that are, that are out there. Um, but uh, there were, at times, I think there were folks in the FDR administration that were actually consulting with legal and constitutional experts, wondering if there was a constitutional pathway to authoritarianism. Because there was a feeling that if, if democracy failed, um, that the whole, whole country could fall apart. So it was very serious business in terms of um, what was being addressed at, at that time. Um, so... Um, Questions about the new consensus, the questions that, and, and somebody coming up with a, um, a plan, and any plan, even the, the new Green Deals, um, I would just have to ask myself these questions. I don't know if you can read that, but one is, um, who is developing this new worldview? Um, what assumptions underlie it? Whatever this worldview, is it a political worldview? Is it a scientific worldview? Um, where do we and get a chance to provide any input. One thing that was, uh, I ran into at the, at the conference I was in, in California, I actually, I had to, well, I didn't have to, I volunteered, I agreed to chair uh, some panel discussions. One was on the Green New Deal, and it was very stimulating uh, round table, and I got pulled aside afterwards, um, you know, in between sessions, that's where everything happens. By a number of people, very different perspectives. Of the, the, an energy, I mean, a senior planner in Portland, Oregon, of African American community um, organizers, um, health um, uh, advocates, and they all had the same question. It came to me only because I think because I was chairing the panel. 
and probably thought I knew more than I well, certainly assumed that I knew more than I did. But the question that they all asked was, how do we get involved in this? Do we have any, is there, are there any avenues or, or opportunities for any <laughs> input? Will there be hearings? Right? Or, or, and, or, or can, and, and by the way, these, this, these concerns were not raised um, necessarily in, in, in any critical context. They all felt that they had something to offer. We're doing things that are working. And is there any way that we can inform the process so that a couple things, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you can learn from some on the ground uh, experience that are actually working. And no one could quite see where there might be uh, avenues to do that. Um, the other question that I always would raise is, um, what are the, all the options available to us? And how are you, those are, that are drafting these types of policies, in this case, we're, you know, very critical, important policy, um, how do you know that you have and you're exploring as many options as you, as you can? I mean, that was one of the big things about um, Bucky and, you know, and his thinking, and some people didn't quite get this, you know, he says, when he, when he starts to think of a problem, he says, I always start with the universe. And people say, what do you mean start with universe? And he, well, he says, I start the universe, and then I whittle my way down, discarding all the macro relevancies, and then I get closer, and then I start to discard the micro relevancies, but I don't want to leave anything out. So if you start with the universe, you're, you've got everything included, and then you finally whittle your way down to the core issues that are relevant to what you're, um, to, to the problem that you're trying to solve. I know that may sound weird, but it, I do that every time I try to solve a problem, and it actually does work. Um, what are the implications of the proposed action? Have you had a chance or any, what mechanism, what, what process have you put in place that gives you a sense that you've thought this through and you understand what those implications are? And then finally, given that vision they talked about, you know, again, an equitable world, a beautiful world, is that world even possible? Um, I think that we do indeed need a new worldview. I think that um, the good news is that we have a head start on it. And if you take the lesson or at least the headline from this Guardian article, which was just written a few, um, a few weeks ago, <coughs> it, it basically says, and this, this is near and dear to my heart, obviously, because I spent a number of years at the New Alchemy Institute, but it, and they talked about the creation of the, the living machines, all the research projects on renewable energy, sustainable architecture, and the question they pose is that this, these eco-pioneers design a blueprint for the future. And you know, if you're asking me that, you know, the answer is going to be clearly um, they did, and it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with people like Dr. John Todd and Bill McClarney and, and um, Nancy Jack Todd, the three co-founders of New Alchemy, which was uh, an organization that um, was founded in the 70s and really pretty much at the time, right, right around the time of the first Earth Days, um, and a time when we were doing, and by the way, those are times when youth were out in the streets and we were protesting and we were challenging the status quo. I think the thing that, that Todd, uh, the Todds and McClarney did, and by the way, John and Bill were uh, marine biologists. They were both PhDs in marine biology, working at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, one of the you know, renowned organi uh, research organizations in the world. But they just said... Uh, Somebody's got to start, and you take the initiative, right? Someone has to start working on the alternatives. It's great to point out and to point out 
what the problems are and why there are problems, fossil fuels, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. But at some point, we've got to start to address, um, we have to start building a better model. That's what Bucky would say is you don't challenge, uh, the best way to uh, really sort of address the problems of the world is, is, to, is to create a better model. Um, and so this was an amazing place. Um, as, uh, as mentioned before, a pioneering work. I think, you know, in many cases, and we're not alone, by the way. Rodell, um, there are a number of other, Rocky Mountain Institute was doing the work in, um, in, in renewable energy. But it was a pretty heady time when people were um, researching. And this was like, a, a, again, an incredible um, uh, amalgam of hippies and scientists and poets and, and artists who were coming together to try to um, come up with these um, solutions. The, the key to it was that nature provided the model for most of the designs. And, and I mean that quite literally. This is sort of biomimicry at, at, its, at, its, um, at its height. Uh, I just mentioned some of the things here. David actually beat me to the punch David, in, in his introduction in pointing out some of the um, main um, accomplishments at the time. Here's one point I want to point out. Fuller also pointed out that new ideas, innovations, have a gestation period. And he actually understood that different industries have different, that is, the, um, the period in which a new idea actually gets incorporated, whether it's into an industry or into society. And industries, each industry has its own sort of gestation period. Uh, aeronautics, I mean, is one of the, it, it's one of the fastest where a, a new and a good idea can get incorporated within a couple of years, three years. The building construction trade is the slowest, 25 to 50 years for a new idea or innovation to sort of make its way. When I was at, at, at the New Alchemy Institute, we actually renovated an old barn. We turned it into, the, I think, one of the country's first super insulated buildings. No central heating system, you know, air-to-air heat exchangers and Tyvek. And, and we presented, um, a, made a presentation to the, to the um, uh, Building Trades Association on Cape Cod. Um, a number of people got up and walked out. They looked at this stuff and said, what is this Tyvek? What are you talking about? And they just stormed out of the meeting. And that was, again, indicative of the fact that, that a, a resistance, um, but it was almost like an industrial cultural resistance, not so much individual, or, 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 but really sort of coming at it from um, a phenomenon that Fuller and I think now a bunch of others are starting to observe and say, how many of those trends and how many of those patterns can we pick up? Because as you start to understand that, you get a better sense of how to address problems. You get a better sense of what the culture you're trying to deal with accepts or rejects. And it's not, to, in, in some cases, how you can maybe circumvent that process. Um, so as we were rethinking um, technology at places like New Alchemy Institute, Rocky Mountain Institute, there were folks, obviously, um, E.F. Schumacher, Bob Swan, and others who were doing the same thing and rethinking economics. And, you know, there's no question that the smallest beautiful economics of the people mattered. Seminal book in terms of getting, and, you know, both of these sort of activities did a lot in terms of, I think, emboldening people, because I think in back, at least I know, it wasn't common for people to think that you could actually question science. You could question 
economics. Most people didn't understand economics. Maybe most economic, uh, economists didn't understand economics, I still think. But, but you didn't question that because they were, for all intents and purposes, they were givens. And you accepted them. But I think, you know, with, with, with books like Small is Beautiful and with activities that, and, and experiences, as David mentioned, and Jane Jacobs, by the way. Um, Jane Jacobs probably, you know, and again, Jane Jacobs made um, clear what my second favorite philosopher meant when he said, that second favorite philosopher being Yogi Berra, you can observe a lot by looking. And Jane Jacobs was a great observer. And she, she, under, she walked the streets of New York and she saw what was going on, she saw the dynamics of, of cities and city life. <coughs> and she understood the importance of preserving local neighborhoods. And she had the guts to stand up against people like Robert Moses, right? The big, you know, developers in New York City. And she wrote some amazing books herself. You know, The Life and Death of Great American Cities, Cities and the, and the Wealth of Nations. And, <coughs> and then you have a, a group of, of, of just a community like the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Poor African-American, white, Cape Verdean, Latino residents, victimized by redlining, disinvestment, racism, arson for profit, as David pointed out, reducing their, their community to rubble. And then for them to have the vision to understand, and part of that was because of consultation with folks here at, at Schumacher, Bob Swan and Susan Witt, understanding um, probably more than I think even some of the academics and people who were experts in this, the power, the real power of a community land trust. And without dwelling too much on that, because I want to get to it and make sure I don't, but I, I think, you know, they understood that, that building community wealth was an important process. And their economics says that they, they realized that they had to, to some extent, sacrifice individual, the maximizing individual wealth to build community wealth, which in the end really helped everyone. And it was just a different way of looking at economics that most you know, economists will tell you, and even, even some of the foundations. Um, um, the Ford Foundation was a little reticent about giving us a grant because they said, you, you, the, the people don't own the land. You're taking away their opportunity to build wealth. And we, I shouldn't say we, they, it really was they, uh, proved them wrong in that account. So we're questioning science, technology, questioning math, <coughs> the uh, economics. And we also think we have to rethink globalism. And I think whether, you know, people say, well, globalism is a, it's a bad thing, it's gone awry, and we, don't, we can't <coughs> support, participate in that. But as I say, anybody, as long as we all carry these around, among other things, right, we have these, globalization is, is a reality. Um, because the components of, of, our, of our, our electronics, our, our consumer electronics, um, and I'm going to, as I point out in a little bit, our, our renewable energy technologies that are on the, the drawing board as being part of the solution to the problem have now become inextricably part of a global supply chain. And there's possibility, even, even as we think, and this is, again, as Hazel Henderson pointed out in the article, we, we really do have to do everything we can to understand what it means to... Um, uh, think globally and act locally, and as I would say, and vice versa. Because I don't, I don't know how we're going to, how you, you, you do otherwise. So let me then sort of segue into the World Game Workshop. Um, we're the subtitle of this. What we're trying to do with the World Game is again to is revitalizing. I'll talk about what that is in just a second. But a concept that um, 
that, that Bucky um, developed. Um, we actually feel honored. I'm, I'm working with a woman named Elizabeth Thompson, who was former executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, and she was also the director and founder and director of the Buckminster Fuller Challenge. And that was an annual $100,000 award that was given a, a, a grant that was uh, awarded to uh, part of a competitive grant process to um, uh, for proposals that were meeting basic human needs, solving a major problem using the overall design science approach that, that, that Fuller developed. Uh, we feel that part of the world game is, is really is to look for those solutions, but we also feel it's got to be a tool for improving what we're calling global systems liter literacy, our understanding of how global systems work and our relationship with that world. Remember, the, 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 so the goal of the world game workshops is to, and this is important because it's people will, anyway, to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense, offense or the disadvantage of anyone. Think that's possible? Most people, well, I, I, I say because most people would say, absolutely, how are we going to do that? Is that possible? Here's what I would say, and, and to the point, to that point, to that point, I, you can Google, and, and somebody challenged me in the email if you find it afterwards, but go on to Google, take a look, search, and see if there's any other organization or institution anywhere, as you Google, that is trying to make the world work for 100% of humanity, and by doing it without ecological offense and disadvantage of anyone, and you won't find it. So what, what Bucky would say is, look to see what needs to be done that no one else is doing that you think you may have the ability to do, and do it. And it doesn't mean you're going to find anybody who's going to pay for it, but um, you should try it anyway. So um, let me just sort of say, and this is the centerpiece of this, is the Imaxian map. And I think um, that is the map I mentioned before, no distortions. And he invented this map and actually patented the map, um, which shows again that it was, and you know, the, 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 the other part about this map is that it, when you look at this, you not only are there no distortions, but no country or no area has a privileged position. You could flip it around and nothing would change, but it also just shows you, uh, again, sort of the, a different relationship. And you can almost see, remember Pangea, the, the, you know, the, at least the, 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 the original, all the continents were, were one big glob, and so we were one major continent and it sort of broke apart. But as you can see from this, what, what, what the Dimaxian map shows, we are still connected. And instead of us being one major continent, we're sort of now a necklace, which is sort of important in terms of looking at some of the opportunities that we have. So the, um, um, the World Game uh, Global Simulation um, has, I've mentioned it before, got off track, but Elizabeth and I are working through the Schumacher Center We've been actually blessed with being given the ability to steward the reimagining of what the World Game Workshop could be. And particularly in this time of global crisis, we feel that a tool like this is important. So um, before going any further, maybe I'm looking out at the audience, and since there's a lot of gray out there, but also a lot of non-gray, I'm not sure that everybody understands um, sort of who Buckminster Fuller was. Um, other than maybe people know him as a, 
inventor of the, the geodesic dome and um, the person who would give 24-hour uh, lectures about everything that he knew. And, and, and he did that. And, and um, I went to one and was glued, and, I tell you. Um, but he was um, a cartographer, mathematician, inventor, poet. Um, he was a polymath. Um, I, the thing I, one of the things I like about him most is that he was uh, kicked out of Harvard twice. And um, once because I think, well, I won't go into that. But anyway, he was, and, but he learned his understanding of whole systems did not come from academia, but it came from serving in the military, serving in the Navy. And in World War I, he understood that if you're on a, a ship and um, you've got to know everything you can about what is on that ship, how it's equipped, what's there in terms of your, your life support, and you also have to know everything you can about the environment that that ship is operating in if you want to survive. And that led him to sort of this perspective of, of whole systems, but it did not come sort of through, through academia. Um, so he's written a number of books, I had a number of inventions, including the, you know, the Epcot Dome that was at, you know, Expo in 67. Uh, he also developed a Dynaxion car during the Depression that could see, I think, up to uh, uh, 15 people that could get a, a, a 60, 70 miles, to, no, 100 miles to the gallon. He had three, three wheels, could pivot on one wheel. Um, but um, it was, he was a designer in the extreme. And it wasn't, the, even the geodesic dome was not necessarily something that he envisioned would necessarily be used by everyone, but it demonstrated some very important principles. And all he wanted to do was to demonstrate, among other things, that spheres, obviously, if you're talking about affordable, and it was designed to address housing crisis, a housing crisis in a world with exploding population. What do you want to do? You have to figure out, and this is sort of the mantra, how do you do more with less? And a sphere, I'm, we all remember this from our geometry, right? Is, this, is, a, is this the shape or the, the, the structure that encloses the maximum amount of volume using the least amount of surface area to do it. You can't enclose space any more efficiently than with a sphere. But, he, but spheres are kind of also a little bit unstable, so he triangulated the sphere. Triangles actually enclose the least amount of Area, but using the most um, surface area to do it as in tetrahedra. But if you integrate the two, what you get is a very efficient, lightweight structure. And remember, if you the picture of the dome, you could we took about 20 people could pick one up, set it down, reestablish it, put it cinder block foundation, and it could withstand um, hurricane force winds. And so we we know how to do some things. Um, and he, he sort of designed in sort of those extremes so that we could see. But Synergetics, by the way, just Synergetics was his major work. It's a very difficult book, but it really encapsulates what he um, described as his discovery and articulation of nature's coordinates. It's an incredible, fascinating book. It's, it's, it's geometry. But here's what I will tell you. It's a book where you can understand the principles of biology and, and ecological design, and I dare say even Einstein's theory of relativity, but you don't need abstract mathematics. He felt that the whole idea of this, this initiation of, into the scientific world through algebraic calculus and abstract mathematics that people couldn't sort of quite comprehend was a way to um, sort of keep a closed fraternity. So his attempt... And by the way, the, by no means does this mean that this is not a difficult book to read. It's <laughs> because of his, his use of language, but even his use of language was precise. He would invent, as my friend Deb reminded me just 
two sec or two minutes ago that he was more than two seconds because I've been up there a long time. But you know what I'm saying. Um, but but he used language in a way that forced you to think, not reflex. And what would happen if you really put the effort into reading it? You, I, I can't speak to you. I, for the first time, understood what it meant to really understand something that was vitally important. And in fact, I was convinced that I had come to understand some eternal principles of universe. There I said it, right. Eternal principles of universe. So synergetics, um, here's what, just, uh, I, I am gonna read this, it's big, but, but you grope for analogies. The Notebook of Leonardo, the Opera of Paracelsus, Pascal's Pensee, uh, or Alexander Pope's remark about creation. Quote, a mighty maze, but not without a plan. It is alternately brilliant and obscure, opaque and shot through with moments of poetry. What becomes clear with patience is that the virtues and liabilities are one. Synergetics could not have been written in any other way because its language and mathematics are vehicles for vision. And that was the New York Times um, 1975 um, uh, New York Times book review. So this is nature's coordinate system that Bucky challenged. Talk about challenging mathematics. You know that, X, Y, Z, everything going on to infinity. Bucky said, I don't think nature works that way. He says, I think nature works in closed systems. And there's a, another way to see intersecting planes that have the same um, angular orientation, not 90 degrees, but 60 degrees. And he called this the vector equilibrium. And he said it was nature's operating system. You have to, can't take my word for that, I realize that, but, but this is from Morse Klein, Mathematics Loss of Certainty, I'm gonna make sure I get this. But anyway, mathematical creation of the early 19th century, strange geometries, strange algebras, forced the mathematicians reluctantly to grudgingly to recognize, realize that mathematics proper and the mathematical laws of science were not truths. Apparently, mathematical design was not inherent in nature, or if it was, Man's mathematics was not necessarily the account of that design. What was synergetics? So I believe, for the, not me, but Buckminster Fuller discovered and articulated the nonlinear logic of the structural mathematics of nature, what he called nature's coordinate system and synergetics. Triangular tetrahedral system that employs 60 degree coordination rather than 90 degree coordinate system. And what you then begin to see is you see it articulated there are things, this is closest packing, packing of spheres. It's the way he thinks nature coordinates. It, it, with, the, with the Cartesian coordinates, you've got infinity. You can start throwing, pollution can go out to somewhere because it's a wide open system. This system has feedback and you can kind of see how it goes. And it's also scalable. I mean, this doesn't do it justice, but I think you can see obviously there's that form and function become sort of integrated in real ways. Nature is beautiful not because it has ornamentation that was put there just to make it look pretty because nature is totally functional. And the total functionality of nature then emerges as in our eye, and I think ever as beauty because it's designed right. Design may be anthropomorphic, but at least that's what I'm gonna use that. So uh, I would say dare to be naive. And War Games, which is the, the, the Bucky Fuller's World Game Workshops, were designed as a direct counterpoint to war games. War games are linear. They are analytical games that are used to obviously create um, opportunities to play out strategic 
um, situations and to, um, with the ultimate goal of defeating uh, adversaries. World Game uses, and by the way, um, I should point out, that's using data and information from around the world in terms of resources, in terms of trends, in terms of population, in terms of what's going on in the world, and you use that, and, and that becomes part of your inventory for developing a strategic uh, defense uh, strategy. World Game uses that same information. This is important. He said, what would happen if you or I had that same information, the same data, and could use that instead of developing weapons, we've put that to, uh, to the use of solving human needs um, and um, uh, for everyone aboard Spaceship Earth. He said if that happens, World Game would make it, does make it eminently clear that we have four billion billionaires aboard our planet as accounted by real wealth, which is a fact which he says has been obscured by our traditional economic system. And by real wealth, his definition is real wealth is, a technol is the technological ability to protect, nurture, and support the needs of life. It's not making money. It's really are we, are we enhancing and building and nurturing and supporting life support. And real wealth is a product of energy times intelligence, energy turned into artifacts that advantage human life. Wealth being a human Concept. I mean, this is like not, we're not saying, so it is about building um, that piece. So, <laughs> quickly, before I go, I'm going to get to climate change, renewable energy. Um, spent a number of years, uh, 1989, I did go to that conference in 1988, uh, created something called the Mass Office of Science and Technology. One of our first publications was on climate change, worked with the Renewable Energy Trust, and had the, um, and Massachusetts by default, by default, became um, the U.S. Um, uh, leader, not leader, that's the wrong word because we didn't do that as well, but we became the first place where offshore wind energy development became, um, um, started to be developed. And uh, uh, William Hieronymus, who's a University of Massachusetts professor, was the first to identify the offshore wind resource as being enough to supply electricity for the entire world. And he was the first person to start to design floating platforms. So here we are now, and the good news. Uh, look at renewables. I mean, renewable power prices are now lower than the cost of natural gas. I think it's like approaching coal. Uh, Bill McKibben is quickly to point that out. He points out the cost of solar is actually going down too. And, um, you know, there are calls for stopping fossil fuels, build 100% renewables. Yes, but. And it's the but. We've got to start to realistically say, what is that? What are the buts? World Game Workshops. Where, you know, again, we've inherited this from the past. We're going to update this, offers a series of real-time, data-driven, immersive educational experiences. And so we want to illuminate global system dynamics and start to say, can we take a look at these proposals and sort of assess or evaluate or their, their ability to do what they say they are designed to do? And just really quickly, I'm going to get to the end of here, but so we, we, some of the things we look at are world resources. That was one of the keys for four. You know, what are those resources? Now, I'm going to do my geeky thing, right? Sally did her geeky thing. Mine is a periodic table, which I love. And the periodic table is, an, an, it is, it's, 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 is nature's minimum inventory, maximum diversity toolkit for creating everything. Right? I mean, they didn't tell us that. In, I mean, they sort of told us that in chemistry, but you can't, everything in nature, in the natural world, is built from the, um, either the elements or some combination of those elements, which were born where? 
in stars. We are of stardust, right? Nova, explosions, and, and so those are the elements. But they also, <coughs> the toolkit for everything in, that we make in society. So in, in this is, I love this, this illustration because it, it shows you the chemical elements, but it also kind of gives you an indication of what they're used for, why they're important, what their economic value is. And by the way, that economic value, value varies over time. It varies with the development of technologies that use them, right? Cobalt, a few years ago, not, cobalt, little red dye, nobody talked about cobalt. And all of a sudden with our smartphones and all, cobalt markets are soaring because of technological development. Here's the, here's the most important thing is that those elements, those minerals are distributed unevenly around the world. That's, that's, you know, and, and again, if, how does, you interpret that from the, from nature's point of view, that, that uneven distribution of elements and minerals leads to diversity, right? Different plants, different flora and fauna, or in different parts of the world, because different, they have the different sort of mineral or elements and contents to, to, um, uh, to, to support them or not support them. In the case, I, I apologize for this, but in the case of, um, renewable energy, Wind turbines, solar panels, all rely on a vast array, a combination of chemical elements and minerals. And as you can see, or maybe can't see from here, but you know, if you look at offshore wind, you can see that where they get many of, and these are sort of the, the, the key down, the, the, the log down here shows you what elements are being used, but, uh, and shows you that they're sourced from many different parts of the world. China being a major source, and as we, you probably heard about the rare earth element. Everybody's heard about rare earth elements now, but in some cases they come from places, you know, cobalt from Congo, 54%, I think of that, and, and those are conflict nations in some cases. Of my, so there are logistical, economic, ethical, moral issues now that are a result of us developing these new technologies that can, in fact, have the potential for addressing climate change but we will be remiss if we don't understand that there are a lot more implications than sort of meet the, meet the eye. But in, in addition to resources, we are looking at technologies and technology development because I mentioned technologies in many cases define what minerals or elements are important. But here's what I want to do here is that, that the green, the original Green New Deal leading up to the Second World War, one of the areas that it focused on and one of the things that the new Green Deal focuses on is research and development. And if you look at our today's economy, and you realize that, and this is important, that, that pretty much nearly all of the core technologies that characterize a digital age came from military R&D labs. And, and, and again, we are, for the most part, recipients. Our economies, our economy in particular, over the years has been driven by obsolete military technologies or outdated or replaced military technologies that the, and which is unfortunate is that the graphic that didn't show up, up in the top there are the major companies like Halliburton and some of the large corporations that then take those um, no longer classified technologies and say, how can we introduce these into the economy? Not to meet human needs, but to make money, make a lot of money. And so you, 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 and you, you realize that there's a little bit of um, there's a, there's a skewing there in terms of what would happen if the focus of R&D programs really were to try to address human needs instead of sort of lining the pockets of some of these uh, major corporations. By the way, 
you know, the other day when I, I had to get my, or not the day, a few weeks, some months ago, when I got my airbag replaced in my, 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 um, my car, I got a rental. It was a brand new car, and I get into it, and all of a sudden, I'm saying, is this thing out of control? I'm getting jerked around, and, you know, I never driven. My car's rolling. I don't have, you know, I don't have the new, but it was equipped with all the new um, accessories that are um, uh, part of the field test that the military is developing for their autonomous vehicles, right? We really are sort of field testing that technology. The military has identified the next arena for a major war is going to be mega cities. And they've determined that the way those wars are going to be fought will be with autonomous vehicles and drones and, um, and facial recognition technologies. And so as they're developing them, we get them sort of said, and, and maybe we love them, maybe they, you know, the lane change things and all the, the but in essence, what they are are the technologies that are being developed for the next phase of warfare um, in, in those areas. So I'm going to end really quickly, but it's sort of, you know, what, what, what Bucky advocated was um, sort of, again, transferring and replacing technologies for weaponry to technologies for livingry. And what, what, what might it look like if we had an R&D budget that went to things like eco-designs or floating offshore wind farms or, or soil, carbon sequestration, electric vehicles uh, would be sort of important. I'm going to get near the end here and talk about human needs and trends. We need to find out what's going on in the world that might affect us and that might give us, as Sally mentioned, some surprises about maybe where some of the solutions are. And so making the invisible visible, looking at supply chains, how many folks have probably by now have heard of the Belt and Road Initiative, the new Silk Road in, in China? Um, it is, in fact, um, Belt and Road is the largest infrastructure project in the history of, uh, at least we know, in the, ever undertaken. Um, just really quickly, it's, it involves 69 countries, 60% um, of the world's population, and talking about nearly $1 trillion in projected investments. I think the key is that it is a, it is a, it's loaded with a lot of things, but it is investment in infrastructure. And I think it's a little distinguished between, that's the way the U.S., you know, when we talk about, you know, aid to other countries, it's usually in the form of um, in, in, in many things, but certainly in, 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 in almost designed for regime change. And I'm not saying this isn't, I'm going to be very careful here, but infrastructure investment makes sense and countries can benefit by, and it's a tangible, a tangible um, result. Now, China gets a lot in return for that, right? Because they get access to things like ports, because they're helping to build those ports and railroads, which also has strategic importance. So it's everything is at least a, I would say, double edge, if not multi-edged sword. But this is what's going on. I only point this out to say that it's coming. The also the thing because of the supply chain work, it's really from an operational and functional point of view with these 60 countries that are, are participating in it, the whole notion of nation-state boundaries is almost being dissolved. They don't matter as much because they're, they're interconnected. They, they're, uh, as China is building the railroads, the highways, and the ports, and the airports, they're developing with among these 69 countries the standards, the tech, right? The, the engineering standards that every, they're all using. So they're creating this this different type of network and this different type of interdependency. I, some people, if you're a critic, you will say it's a dependency or interdependency. But one of the things they're also developing is a global energy interconnection. They're proposing to connect the world with 
one integrated electric grid, modular, modular integrated electric grid. And the reason for that, or at least ostensibly, and you can sort of understand it, is, is that they see their, China's positioning itself become leader in renewable energy, electric vehicles, and, and recognizing that they're making probably the best play to convert the transportation sector to electricity. Uh, the, the bonus, the, the incentives they provide for, for buying electric vehicles, they're developing their network of, of recharge stations across the, the, their, the continent, and they're pulling together Eurasia. But they realize that could they, they're trying to see if it's possible to make renewable energy a base load, a, a, a steady and reliable source, not just intermittent. And the way that they see doing that is connecting different regions around the world because someplace the wind is always flowing, the sun is always shining, high voltage, uh, um, a direct current transmission now allows for the long-range transmission of the electricity. And so they have this vision of really creating this continent, uh, this, that particular project. I want to point out that in the during the Carter administration, Bucky Fuller approached Jimmy Carter and, and um, Premier Trudeau and Brezhnev of the USSR with an idea that he said, I think you should pursue. And it was to, I presented my plan for using our increasing technical ability to construct high voltage superconductive transmission lines and implement an around the world electrical energy integrated, integrating the daytime and nighttime hemispheres, thus swiftly increasing the operating capacity of the world's electric energy system and living standard in all, um, in an unprecedented feat of international cooperation. So he sort of saw this as that, that spontaneous cooperation that would sort of bring countries together. And it's sort of interesting that you've got a Western visionary way out there, Buckminster Fuller, and authoritarian, repressive China, but they've reached the same conclusion about the viability and at least the importance of trying to take this trip. So I'm going to end by saying, you know, they can envision um, as the world game. We might start asking the workshop a number of questions. Could you envision a model of global cooperation to address climate change? Could you chart its critical path? Uh, could you support a China-led world electric grid? Could you articulate an alternative? We, we want to use this as a way of getting at some of those thorny questions. I don't know how else, by the way, uh, the point I really wanted to make with that is that may be the only way that we can actually use, meet the demands of the, um, uh, the, the resource demands for renewable energy without exhausting them because of the cooperation. You're, much, you're going to be using those resources much more efficiently. If everybody goes their own way, we tried to do a community wind project in, in Massachusetts, and we realized that that was going to eat up a lot of resources if everybody was going to develop their own. That doesn't rule out, by the way, it doesn't say microgrids and local grids can't work because, again, they can be modularly designed and they may not all be renewable. But if I don't see how we're going to get around this conundrum of uh, we can't... I almost forgot this point. I am going to end this, but I almost forgot the point that the other reality that we have to face is that um, renewable energy technologies, the wind, the solar, it's, it's, it is part of an extractive industry. I mean, we say, no, we're no longer going after oil and gas, and so we're going to close those mines, and we're not extracting. Yes, if you're going to rely on solar and wind, you are extracting. And so we've got to start, we have to be honest about that, 
and we've got to start you my predictions you're going to start seeing phrases like is there can there be sustainable extraction or what i'm not being facetious here but something has got to happen because we're we're not being honest if we're and i don't care if that if you need that minute amount of whatever it is right um cobalt or, 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 or whatever, you've still got to go into the mines to get it. And now they're talking about mining right under the, the ocean. And you've got this conflict now going on in the Arctic as it, as it starts to melt. So let me end by saying you never change things by fighting against the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. That doesn't mean you reach utopia. utopia. It probably means you're going to reach more difficult problems. One island, one ocean, one earth. Thank you. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerfornewexonomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerfornewexonomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust. Building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region. And engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerfornewexonomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413 528 1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.